yeah. did you want to start your podcast? If you want to give a quick introduction to, um, I'll say Michael, the Red Line Podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. I've been listening to it for a little while now. I actually found you on my private TikTok, one that I just mm-hmm. use for personal use, which I haven't really been using lately. Um, not even because of all the you know, the stuff that's going behind with TikTok right now. But more so, yep. it's just once you kind of realize how the algorithm works, you're like, ah, I probably shouldn't be spending this much time on it. Um, <laughs> which probably isn't yeah. the best for for us to be saying, you know, as as creators <laughs> on that on that app. But I found your podcast over there. And once I started moving forward with the Aftermath Daily, I was like, man, I really want to have a, a good chance to talk to to you guys and be able to, you know, I mean, give your podcast a little bit of, you know, shine some light on it from some of the viewers that maybe listen to me that haven't been able to listen to it or haven't um, been shown it before. And like I said, it's a fantastic podcast. And I really think one of the best things you guys do is you guys are creating an educational environment, but also tackling legitimate issues. Like one of your most recent episodes, the one on um, what's happening in Mexico with the Narcos issue, which I'm actually... um, having Ian Grillo on in a few weeks um, mm-hmm. to talk over what's happening there as well. It's something that I, and I say this to anyone that when we talk about cartels, but it, it's topics that are all around the world. Seldom do they actually get talked about or even like any, you know what I mean? Like, or bring on actual guests to have the time of day to actually speak on these issues. And you guys do a great job of that, bringing on diverse perspectives and giving the guests the time and the opportunity to really explain what's happening, which I think is really important. So I'd love to hear... What was the thought process going in starting this podcast? What kind of inspired you to, you know, want to be able to create that type of environment? And then also, how did you come to the idea of it being, you know, a multi-guest type of podcast that tackles one issue very in depth and really looks at it from all different perspectives? Yeah. So my background before I got into you know, started the red line was I was a frontline war correspondent. And what happens, unfortunately, when you do that is you get, you know, you do the TV spot from you know, wherever it is in the world and you have to kind of explain the Libyan civil war in 90 seconds. And that just it doesn't work. You know, you have to just go good guy, bad guy, shoot, shoot, that's it. And you don't get any nuance. You don't understand the why, you don't understand the background behind it. And it really just drove me nuts that there wasn't you know, there was all these political conversations about, you know, here's what's happening overseas, but it was done through this 90 second lens. Uh, even though there's multiple opinions, there's multiple different schools of thought on it. So the idea of the show was to create sort of a 90 minute crash course, you know, effectively designed around the model of, hey, you're flying to this country, you know, here's 90 minutes and you can get a pretty good understanding of what the issue is at the moment. Uh, so we, what we do is we put, you know, we pick a topic, whether it be, you know, narcoeconomics, which was the recent one, or, uh, East Asian rearmament, the Libyan civil war, and give you know uh, a couple of either from White House, CIA, Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, local fighters, and kind of give the both perspectives and sort of uh, and not really neutral look at uh, these big issues because a lot of these issues take ninety minutes to actually properly even get a, a modicum of understanding. So it's just it was a reaction to this really soundbitey way that most correspondents unfortunately have to give international affairs in. And why do you think that soundbody way is kind of taken center stage? That's part of the reason I started doing my videos as mm-hmm. well. Not even that I think I recognize they're kind of short form, but it's enough where I want to put the information out there that at least people somewhat know what's going on. And then they could say, okay, I should mm-hmm. probably go look into that a little bit more. Cause I noticed the same thing. It seems like every headline, every report, they're shortening it as quick as possible. And 90% of the time, not even focusing on the actual issue, just mm. giving 
some random highlight that happened that they know will get the most clicks or something like that. So why do you think that kind of has that trends taken over? Because a lot of these are complicated issues. You know, when you understand, uh, you know, you look at a lot of these topics and there's multiple countries involved, there's economics involved, there's politics involved. It gets really complicated and you either have to go and spend 90 minutes giving everyone who the backgrounds are, who this president is, why the country is the way it is. And a lot of news stations just don't have the time for that. You know, they have to fit in uh, you know, news, they have to fit in weather, they have to fit in sports, and they also have to fit in a bunch of commercials for McDonald's. You know, it's you have to package it very quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, that's the model we're in. So you have to be, you know, uh, putting things together really, really short form, hoping that people will eventually look into it afterwards. And unfortunately, because we all, a lot of people did move to that short form, there wasn't this long form for people to go really investigate. But I, again, I think there's a great place for short form, and this is what I like what you guys do, is you're encouraging people to go look into other subjects more and, and you know, okay, I understand that yeah, a bit, let's go look into it more. And that's fantastic. Uh, so the, uh, the idea is that they learn something from you and then come and check us out and go, okay, cool. I've, I've had my 90 minute crash course now on, uh, you know, uh, you know, on tire politics. I get it, you know, get it now, but it's, it's a, you know, uh, offering both options. If you want to deep dive into something where you want to go, you know, just get the basics and just kind of keep your, your mind on what's going on in the world. And do you think that's going to be a trend moving forward? Because from my perspective, it seems like the weirdest part about the news, let's mainstream media, is that they'll give that 90 second quick, you know, synopsis of what's happening. But a lot of times, if you wanted to do your own research, you still can't even get, you know, a full overview from these actual news networks. Granted, you'll have places like New York Times, Foreign Policy, Mm. Reuters, whatever, that do do occasional deep dives. And those can Mm. be great reads. But a lot of the time, these topics aren't followed up with those deep dive reads. So do you think there's going to be a trend that kind of flips where journalism has to take that step where we're going to get these deep dive reporting and they're kind of going to become front and center? Or do you think the trend, especially with like how you guys are starting it, where it's going to be these 90 minute, you know, deep dive podcast conversational type of, you know, media focus areas. Do you think that'll kind of take over as well? Hey guys, just want to jump in here real quick and say that if you guys are enjoying the podcast thus far, you could do me a huge favor and leave it a five-star review on any platform you're listening on. This will help the podcast continue to grow and allow me to bring on more and more great guests for you guys to listen to. Now let's get back to the action. I think there is a huge place for long form stuff. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, no, probably not. But then again, I also spend most of my time listening to audiobooks and long form YouTube stuff and, and long form, you know, analysis. And it's, you know, more and more people are. I mean, I'm shocked that at the amount of people that, you know, will will listen to the show every week. Um, you know, we're getting around two million streams a month at the moment, just from people who, you know, mostly listen when they're driving to work or they're doing the dishes or whatever it is. And I walk around my house all the time with a pair of headphones in because I'm always listening to something, you know. And there's more and more people who are doing that. I think we are, you know, all multitasking. We're all seeing on buses. We're all doing stuff. And it fills in that gap. And it is that, you know, I can't, uh, you know, if I open a newspaper, I can't do the dishes and do the newspaper. Whereas if it's a podcast, if it's a audio book, if it's a report that's text to speech, it does allow me to kind of multitask. And unfortunately, people are multitasking more and more at the moment. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a place for these kind of long form uh, almost audiobook style stuff because you know people are consuming more and more uh, podcasts and audiobooks like that, and I think that's you know that's where the market is. And do you see a possibility in the future 
of let's let's face it like the podcast market certainly has been oversaturated i wouldn't necessarily mm. say in the market that maybe you and me target but if you look in just podcasts in general it's a very oversaturated market there's tons of podcasts tons mm. of people with different perspectives whatever it might be one of the obvious challenges that has faced the mainstream media over the past decade but it could honestly go back decades mm. is misinformation false reporting yeah. Areas like that. And then for the past two weeks, I've had two experts um, on China. One mainly was Indo-Pacific, uh, mm-hmm. former military intelligence for New Zealand. And then another mm-hmm. had lived in the mainland for five years and mm-hmm. um, has a PhD, very well versed in everything and everything CCP. Um, but one of their main focuses was the information war and how they mm-hmm. control the podcasts there. And that <clears throat> if you had the red line or the aftermath daily in China, the information that we would be pushing would be vastly different. And, you Mm -hmm. know, situations happening around the world would be characterized very different. So do you see that as a challenge as well, that whether it's on us as individual podcasters or as, you know, the community in general, something that we need to actually be facing and thinking about and, you know, possibly calling out when those type of not to say misinformed podcast, but maybe mm-hmm. misleading, whatever it might be. So it's it's a difficult game because there's obviously a bunch of you know different shows or Twitter, particularly on Twitter, where people you know know there's a huge amount of clicks by being there first. But unfortunately, when you shoot off first, you're also only running with a handful of facts. You know, when something happens in the world, my usual response is, "Give me 24 hours." You know, let's see how this plans out. Or plays out and let me make some calls and let's start actually pulling together information before I feel confident spouting off that this is what's happening. Because I'm I'm, you know, I'm not cash incentivized to get more clicks. And particularly if you're a journalist in a lot of these conventional media places, you are paid by page views quite often. You get bonuses. So you may only have one source corroborating this as a fact, but you need to you want to, you know, there's that cash incentive to go right now and be the first to market which means you don't double fact check, which is where a lot of these problems come from. When it comes to, you know, Chinese influence and, and, and you know, American influence and whatever, you, you, know, you know, government influence inside your shows, yes, it is something we definitely need to be looking into. You know, people should be checking sources. People should be effectively going and looking at the track record. And I've been very proud of the Redline's track record that it keeps, it's a running joke now that any big event happens and we link back to a Redline episode six months before and go, I warned you. I told you this was going to happen. Um, you know, that's you know that's a long reputation we've spent a long time building up, and it's because we don't shoot from the hip. We you know we'll come out a month later with a full expose on what's going on and why it happened. Um, you know, when it comes to China, you know, particularly TikTok is an issue, but it's also an, it, it's a it's a two there's a different angle of the problem. That yes, China obviously has a very different algorithm to what the Americans see to what the Chinese will see. Chinese get much more educational material in their TikTok feeds than the Americans do. But at the same time, if the Americans are going down the route of banning it, uh, we do risk forming an almost digital Berlin Wall. And we don't want – already we have a problem that if you go on VK or some of these Telegram channels that are only populated by Russians, they have a completely different worldview to what the Americans do. They're not seeing how you know the other side of the argument because they're isolated. They've been isolated in that bubble. Uh, and there is a worry that if TikTok is, let's say, banned in the States and, and probably subsequently Western countries after that, that you'll have this entire, uh, you know, particularly in East Asia, Africa, in 
uh, not India, they've already banned it, but other places will all will start to have their own sphere and their own influence and it forms of an echo chamber. And we end up having a complete Western view of the world and a complete you know, Chinese-led view of the world. And there is a bit of worry about that. Uh, still right now, you know, if you're on TikTok, but even if you are in, you know, China, you still probably see American celebrities and some Western viewpoints inside your newsfeed. Uh, eliminating TikTok from the American audience will probably eliminate those out of their feeds. So it's a, it's a difficult issue and I don't know which way personally to go with it. I know in all security apparatuses, you're not allowed to have TikTok on your phone anymore, but there's also a bunch of other apps you're not allowed to have either. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult issue. And I think people miss the, you know, the nuance that there is a risk of forming a much more segregation between West and East. I got to say that perspective is easily the most interesting I've heard on the topic and one that I haven't heard anywhere else. So maybe you guys do a series on that because like a formulation of a virtual Berlin wall is a fantastic analogy. It's just like what's happening. And I think you were spot on pointing out if you look at like Russian telegram channels, and this is something that I run mm. into a lot reporting on stuff that's happening in Ukraine. Nobody really knows because if you become echo chambered into Russian focused media, the way that the script flips is crazy. But mm. anybody that is going to, you know, hold themselves accountable is going to acknowledge that there is similar misinformation happening on the Ukrainian side. Mm-hmm. I would be interested to hear. I guess it's such a tough challenge because you look at it from the perspective is that we live in this modern world where techno technologically a lot of the systems can be taken advantage of deeply by different state actors. But at the same time, it is necessary to almost avoid allowing those echo echo chambers to develop. What would be some of the ways that you think we could handle the situation? Because at least for me, I do think you're right where you almost want to allow it to stay because you want to have those trickles of, you know, Western ideas and even Mm -hmm. for argument's sake, you know, Eastern Russian Chinese ideas as well, but it's a dangerous game. So what do you think, I guess what I'm trying to ask is what do you think maybe would be a solution to this? And also what are some of the challenges you're going to see with Mm -hmm. any direction we go? It's hugely difficult. And one of the made one of the best things about sort of the Western media circuit is that it is much more free. That we do see a much wider range of perspectives in our, in our media. And it does make our, our diet media diet much more diverse than a lot of other countries. And we you know, if we go down that road road, uh, road of effectively really isolating ourselves off, we end up with problems like what Hungary is going through at the moment, where everything went really, really nationalist because frankly, Hungarians quite often only speak Hungarian. So they only read content from Hungary. Therefore, it's only content made by certain Hungarian creators. And you end up in this vicious cycle really quickly. Whereas with English speakers, particularly this, you know, you're British, Australian, Kiwi, you know, all sorts of people putting out English language content. So there's lots of different media to consume, you know, but being so open and allowing this diverse media diet means that we also open ourselves up to disinformation. We also open ourselves up to, you know, Chinese influencing the algorithm, you know, uh, Facebook's influencing the algorithm, uh, obviously Cambridge Analytica influential elections. The best solution that we can see, because it gets to be a bit of a problem that a quick ban hammer and saying, okay, the government will decide what is disinformation and what is not. Whatever hammer you give to one party is going to be wielded by the other one six years later, you know, whenever they come into power. And there is that worry that if there is a government who is maybe not conventional or a bit 
far one way or the other, then they can use that you know disinformation label and call whatever they want disinformation. The only really long-term solution you can kind of see is what Finland's doing at the moment quite successfully is, and that's making disinformation a subject in high school. So teaching kids and high school students to identify where the source is coming from, how credible is a source, have they linked back to a credible source? Is this first-hand knowledge, second-hand knowledge? You know, where, you know, how logical is this argument? Is this just trash? And what's happening is the students that are graduating from these Finnish high schools are, you know, far better at identifying misinformation. So when they see, you know, a clip come of like, you know, here's Russian heroes saving the Ukrainians from Nazis, they can pretty easily go, okay, well, this is obviously not correct and da-da-da-da. That's very multi-generational thinking though. That I mean, that's great for fin- Finnish high school students who are graduating in the last couple of years. Doesn't solve the the 60-year-old Finnish lady who's just discovered, you know, the internet for the, in the last couple of years. That's a really difficult issue and one where you have to find this really, really delicate balance between too much censorship and the government, you, and then you, you know, you're putting way too much faith in governments to decide what gets allowed and what doesn't. Uh you know, I obviously don't advocate for completely free internet. Obviously, you don't want you know children ex- exploitation stuff ha- happening online. But on the other hand, I also don't think going you know completely censorship either solves the problem either. Um, it's a really delicate issue, and, and, and there's far smarter people than me who've written good papers on it. I think the main conflict comes from the definition of disinformation versus misinformation, mm-hmm. and that's where I see a lot of issues, especially in the U.S. today. Where, yep. and whether that's because of political polarization or lack of education, but even then, there you know it's a tricky balance. But I feel like a lot of people, if something conflicts with their current viewpoint, they automatically label it misinformation. Or if there is mm-hmm. tidbits within that have truce, but maybe it's a different type of perspective, it's mm-hmm. labeled misinformation. So that's also a challenge that I think is kind of necessary, and I. Where would you see that definition kind of falling? Because again, it's a dangerous definition that if you allow whatever entity, whether it's government, whether it's a company that's putting restrictions on you know their own employees, whatever it might be, whatever entity you're allowing to define that, mm-hmm. they can really manipulate that to fit whatever type of narrative they're looking to structure. So that's and also why I see the dangers in hmm. educating you know on those two topics. And that's the problem. You know, you can label all sorts of things, misinformation, disinformation, and some of it is actually just genuine mistakes. You know, if a reporter goes out and says, hey, three people have died in this earthquake, and then it comes out a couple of days later that actually six people died in the earthquake, is it the reporter's fault that, you know, he got the number wrong? Because the number may have been true from his sources at the time and things have changed. There may be situations where, you know, the information they had was probably correct at the time, wasn't later on. And that's where then is it disinformation? Is it misinformation? Uh, There are some reporters who, you know, have got sources who gave them wrong information. And that's, you know, particularly for sort of uh, non as, not as well resourced journalists. You know, some of us don't have the budget to go and send four reporters out to Kurdistan and interview a hundred people to double check these sources. You know, if he's got three or four people all telling him the same story and they've got some cooperating evidence and it's pretty good, you can't, it's, you know, I personally wouldn't, but I can understand how people would make that call. And it gets really, really dicey then on, on you know, was that deliberate? Was that not? Uh, obviously, there are 
just some blatant attempts, like, you know, Russian telegram channels will continuously say, Poland's going to invade Belarus, you know, next week. Oh, it's going to be the week after. Oh, it's the week after. Um, that's absolutely disinformation. But, you know, misinformation, it gets really, really difficult as well because, you know, it's it, where you draw the line is completely, as you said, up to who draws it. So you highlighted that a little bit um, in there talking about how, and I don't think people recognize this. So I'd love for you to speak to this a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, being having your background as a war correspondent and also hosting the red line and being able to talk to so many different individuals with different backgrounds, whether they're, you know, on the ground or, you know, just well, well studied and well versed in mm-hmm. whatever topic it might be. What are some of the challenges people don't understand that journalists tend to face that could kind of lead to a lot of these conflicting issues, as you were saying, one false report, one false source, or something similar to that. There's so many issues. You know, obviously, you know, if you get in the trench of one side, if you're, if you know, some of my staff, you, you're embedded with Ukrainians at the moment, and it goes, okay, well, you know, should they be objective? You know, it was really we had the head of the Ukrainian cyber forces on the show recently talking about the sort of cyber war going on in Ukraine. And it's really difficult to go, hey, I, as a journalist, I should be neutral. I should pretend like eat both sides are the same. That's what a neutral journalist should do. But are both sides equally at fault here? You know, if one guy says the sky is green and the other guy says the sky is blue, should I say the sky is yellow? Because technically that's in the middle of both. It's really difficult to thread, you know, completely neutral, but also calling out what's truth and what's not. Um there's also just trying to get sources who are credible, trying to get people who are unbiased, trying to make sure you're not getting fed disinformation, trying to make sure you don't compromise any local sources. Because that's the thing with every episode, we might have three guests who've come on the show and they'll speak publicly, but we may have 12 more who are willing to give us all this information, but will not go public about it. And that's when you get into this kind of, you know, we have all this information, but do we publish it? Because obviously- we don't want to put anyone in danger. No one's life is worth a podcast. <laughs> as much as I think podcasts are great, I'm not going to put anyone in danger over it. Um, you know, do we, how do we want to go and attack a government that we know is already unstable? That's also another consideration you have to make. It's all of these different factors that you have to sort of weigh up and make decisions of of where you go. And it's even you know legal problems is also now another one. We have to run all all our episodes by our, our legal team because you know. It, you can make fun of governments all you want, but if you mention mining companies, they will come after you. Even if they are, you're completely in the right, we don't we don't have the resources to sit and waste you know two hundred thousand dollars in a court case. So you end up in this awful predicament of: do we bankrupt the show, or do we actually bring up these war crimes that we have documented evidence of? And there's all these balancing acts that you have to do throughout consideration on pretty much every episode. And does it worry you that some journalists might not be holding themselves to the same constraints? Because I think that's also partially what you're highlighting is we fact check, we make sure we're checking not only our guests, but also what they're actually able to say. We're going through legal means to make sure, obviously, not only that we're going to get sued, but also that what we're saying actually has some justification, some legal bearing. But we'll see some reporters that jump to conclusions like we said, mm-hmm. do those quick reports that you know are not corroborated, that are not accurate, or, and I think what you just highlighted, attack something that's already at a weakened point that the attack isn't going to benefit anybody, and the disinformation mm-hmm. in itself too could even create a more hostile and a more faulty environment. I hate to say it, you look at the U.S. One of the best examples of this would be January 6th. The reporting over mm-hmm. there, 
all over the place. Very, and it's a very controversial event. Don't get me wrong, hmm. but it's almost gotten blown up to an even higher level because of the way it was treated, both in the media, hmm. whether it's Republicans, Democrats, whoever it is that's reporting hmm. on it. Yeah, and there's plenty of arguments to be made that by politicizing it so much, it's probably you know forced both sides to entrench on this particular issue. It's a really, you know, that's another consideration to make is you know what is the political fallout of of whatever you're going to be talking about. Yeah, it's. <laughs> There's always going to be considerations of of what you should go at. There are journalists who also, you know, may just not have a bit of the background. And there's plenty of times where we've started to put together a piece. We've gone, hey, let's do something on, I don't know, you know, water rights in in Kyrgyzstan. And you go, here's my idea. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. And you'll start actually digging into the episode and go, and you dig into the research and go, wow, okay, there's a whole bunch of, there was this one angle that I just didn't realize. And again, we're lucky that we have a large team and we can go look at things and we can, you know, have lots of local sources and lots of contacts are made over the years. But if you don't have that option open to you, it's pretty understandable that you didn't know that there was this tiny company that's not registered that also has massive control over the water industry. You know, it's and I kind of don't blame some journalists for that because if they don't have a background that they've been doing this for years, or they don't have local contacts to be, you know, explore you know, working with, they don't have uh, you know, staff to be helping them fact check. It is kind of difficult at times to make to dive that deeply into certain subjects. So, you know, I also, as much as I, I really detest disinformation and and do whatever I can to stop it, sometimes I think people are accidentally doing it rather than doing it maliciously. Yeah, I have to agree. I think that's one of the curses that comes with social media too. Is you see all these reposts, and I remember I mean, you were talking about this a little bit earlier. Somebody, you know, around our age who's who's grew up in that age who understands the ins and outs of social media and even quote unquote social media trolling, you know, mm. they'll know, especially with these AI pictures, they'll know, oh, that's not mm. real, whatever it might be. But I don't know if you saw the pictures of Donald Trump circulating. They were saying he got arrested mm. and it was like him fighting the cops. And that was getting posted <laughs> everywhere yep. on Facebook for a day. And people were like, yep. fully believe in this. Mm. You know, and that's a that's a new area that we're, you know, we're going into. And I'd love to talk about that in a little bit, but I did want to highlight, you talked about journalist neutrality. And mm-hmm. I do think that's something very important, but also very difficult to kind of work with. Because as you said, you want to look at whatever conflict it might be, whatever issue it might be from a net neutral lens, mm-hmm. but you always got to remember that there are bad actors and your reporting mm-hmm. does have an impact. Can you remember a specific case where you did a deep dive and it did change how you were looking at the quote unquote bad actors or even you recognize that the way the situation was being handled or reported by the mainstream media or anyone else like that was heavily inaccurate to kind of move away from that, what we would call net neutral reporting? That's a, good, that's a really good question. Obviously, the the big conflict that you know first comes to mind is Nagorno Karabakh, so between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and it's you know you think oh well it's two Caucasus nation they're kind of equal, and when you talk to these guys, there are such venom between them. Um, you know, you can put Russians and Ukrainians in bars together. You can put you know even you know Israelis and Palestinians in a bar together, and they'll they'll probably find something to argue about. But you know, Armenians and Azeris really can't. They just absolute venom between them. But obviously, you go neutral and you go, okay, well, it's both sides. But when obviously the invasions happen, you go, okay, well, now it's really hard to pretend it's both sides. But you know, then you hear the other argument of, well, they're on our land. You know, 
it does change your mind when you sort of speak to both soldiers in, in both trenches and sort of get the difference of narrative that's happening. But yeah, it's a real struggle that you sort of, I, you know, admittedly, I've spent more time with the Armenian side than I have with the with the Azeri side, and it's kind of a my heart says I fit one way, but I know that I have to publicly, you, you know, sit in the middle and don't really pick a side. And it's really difficult to keep journalistic integrity and go, you know, and look at these, you know, look at Armenians who are getting, you know, attacked in a trench and go, well, technically, you know, this is a two-way war and it's a, it's a complicated issue because, you know, a guy's just been shelved for three days straight. That's not what he wants to hear. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult one. And, and But the other, the complete other side of this is you end up, if you go the other way and you get really invested in one side of a conflict, you end up just being a cheerleader for that side of the conflict. And then the other side will never listen to you anyway. And that's also the other coin flip of this is, you know, if I was a waving an Armenian flag and that's all I ever did, then no Aziri would ever take me seriously. Whereas if I wave, you know, have feelings, but if I wave both flags, then at least both sides hopefully come and understand a bit of the other perspective and go, okay, maybe we are a bit in the wrong here, or a bit in the right here, and it's a bit more complicated than I thought it was. And that's obviously, again, I, the theme of the interview might as well just be balance here because it's this horrible, I know what my personal feelings are, but by being a cheerleader, I'm probably making the problem worse. And do you think people forget that perspective too? I think one of the things we've seen with mm. the Ukraine war, which it's a joke at this point, but people mm. talk about it all the time on Twitter. It's like if you have the Ukraine flag in your Twitter viral, they'll, they'll say, like, or your t- Twitter name, whatever it mm. is. They'll basically, oh, your perspective doesn't matter because they say, you know, you've become a cheerleader, whatever it might be. Mm. And not that I agree or disagree with that. It's just more so it's become mm. a, you know, a meme at this point. But mm. in addition to that, I've also seen people, I don't know if you've seen the drone footage that has come out of Ukraine. It's quite brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, something that, <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's, I talked about this a couple weeks back. I had a former Green Beret on. We were talking about mm. how different war is now. It's similar mm-hmm. to Vietnam in the 60s. For the first time, people actually saw mm-hmm. what was happening. Now we're seeing what's happening in 4K and everything, mm-hmm. not just one small clip. I mean, every day there's thousands of clips that are coming out of Ukraine and a brutal, mm-hmm. brutal conflict. But people were cheering on these you know, drone killings, and they're very brutal killings. And you know, there was one situation where the soldier got hit. Um, he realized help wasn't coming, and he ended up shooting himself. And you literally watch that through the lens mm-hmm. of a small drone and people are cheering it on. Mm-hmm. I think you highlighted this well with the Armenian and Azerbaijan conflict is that people forget that there's people on both sides that don't, that don't actually really have a horse in the race that aren't a part of this conflict in the same way we think. So do you think that's a problem that we have with people as well? Huge problem. And this is, this is one of the first things you realize when you get to all of these conflict zones is, you know, I've spent time in Iran, I've spent time with the Taliban, I've spent time with, you know, Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers and, and, you know, all sorts of people. And everyone's pretty much the same. They all have a mother, they all complain about their mother-in-law, they all complain about the speed of the internet and a lot of, you know, circumstances were different. We would probably be sitting in a bar together chatting about something completely different. Uh, And a lot of the the, the grunts, the guys in the trenches, you know, aren't aren't the government. And it's really difficult to sort of, you know, you know, Iran is a classic example that I really detest what the Iranian government does. But when I you go to Iran, the Iranian people are absolutely amazingly lovely. And the biggest threat of death you have there for, you know, for me particularly is they overfeed me to death. 
Um, but I would never endorse what Iran, what the Iranian government does to its people. And it's really difficult to be able to disconnect one from the other that saying I like Iranian people is not the same as I like the Iranian government's policy. And it's not saying I hate all the Iranian government's policy. I hate lots of aspects of, it, of the policy here. And that's, you know, the, the soldiers on both sides here, obviously, I, you know, I detest Russia you know, going into, into this conflict. I think it was a really terrible, terrible move by Russia. And that's pretty, you know, neutral to say. But I don't wish some, you know, poor Russian soldier from probably living out in Novosibirsk, who's, you know, just got roped into this, gets dies in a trench. My hope is that you know, he would go home. You know, none of this happened, and he would be, you know, still, you know, DJing in a nightclub in some terrible, terrible bar in Irkutsk somewhere. But you can criticize governments, you can criticize policy, but you got to realize that there are humans behind all these. And decisions made in Moscow are not the same decisions as a, as a corporal who's scared out of his mind in a trench is probably making as well. And that's a really – you always have to realize that there are humans in the side. And it, those, this drone footage in particular, I get people are cheering and I get people like to see Ukrainian victories. But, you know, you have to have some sympathy for, you know, the, a pretty scared private soldier on the other end. We talked about conscripted. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the main thing that's hit home for me is that – you know, you've heard it so many times from, you know, former veterans and everything is that nobody wanted to be there that day when, you know, the conflict's happening. Not that, of course, you always have soldiers that have been committed to go and fight and whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, nobody genuinely wants or nobody saying wants to genuinely be in conflict, killing another. Well, some kid. of them do, but <laughs> there's, there's definitely you know, some. Yeah. yeah. But at the um, end of the day. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting kettle of fish, and that's you know, I think it really opened my eyes the first time. Obviously, the first time I went, I remember going to Russia the first time, and and you know, having this complete different image of what I thought a Russian person would be like. And then I got there and went, oh, you're just me with a bit of you're just me with a more serious drinking problem. <laughs> that's all it is. Um, you know, the first time you meet, you know, I, I got the chance to meet, you know, meet with Taliban soldiers was you know shocked at how chill a lot of them were with me um because frankly most of them you know aren't a lot of them are very very ideological driven but a lot of them are also bitching about the wi-fi half the time you know there's a lot of things the average person will have indifference when you speak to some of the senior commanders or you speak to handheads of government oh yeah they're completely disconnected from reality half the time but you i tend to have some sympathy for just the basic grunt soldier who probably didn't he didn't decide to be in that trench he was ordered into that trench so we talked about net negative with mm-hmm. you know different reporting, different journalism, and then we talked about net neutral. Is this an opportunity to create a net positive where this type of journalism attacking the topics, having that net neutrality, but also being able to showcase the perspectives of people on both sides? Is that a way that we can actually move, you know, not to sound super grand, but humanity, but move us in a positive direction where to move away from conflict, it's not about settling our political differences, but it's about mm-hmm. understanding who we are on either side and that the person across from you is, as you were just highlighting, virtually the same, but maybe with one or two cultural differences. 
I think so. You know, my 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 absolute dream of humanity is that political differences and debates don't end up being, you know, cultural, guttural issues. They end up being, well, I think this tax policy would probably be better setting, you know, putting 10% more into this industry. Well, I think we should probably go 15% more or maybe we should reform this. The more boring and granular political debates and policy are, the more that it's actually probably in the best interest of people. You know, when it's, you know, guttural, cultural, you know, really buzzy issues. Nothing ever, no one ever changes their minding and nothing ever gets done. And you, you watch the entire debate sit around issues that don't actually change the, you know, the average income of a household or get more jobs in and do more work. And that really kind of annoys me. You know, it's, I, I love when I see, you know, all these TikTokers particularly taking up this, trying to get foreign policy, trying to get actual policy back in discussions here. Because we spent so long just talking about guttural issues that don't really change and move the needle either way. You know, I would love to see policy, you know, people around, you know, dinner tables actually discussing what should our Middle East policy be? Well, I think, you know, I've learned this and this and this, and I think this is probably my feeling about it. Oh, I've learned this, this, and this, and this is my feeling about it. And comparing policy versus policy rather than person versus person or, you know, gut feeling versus gut feeling. And that's, that would be my dream for society. My, my, uh, I've been described many times as a depressed Excel spreadsheet, and I think that probably sums up my politics pretty well. <laughs> I love that. That's a great description. But um, do you think that it's becoming more challenging to get there in the current world environment oh God, we yes. have, considering U.S. Oh as God. a superpower? Oh God, yes. Because your algorithm, you know, all these sites, whether it be TikTok or whether it be Facebook. Is designed to keep you there as long as possible. That's the whole point. And now we're scrolling through, you know, the average, you know, Gen Z person will scroll through a hundred meters of content per day, which is crazy to me. But, you know, the algorithm is designed to send you down a rabbit hole and further, you know, push you in one political direction or another. And they know that because it keeps you on there longer. And it's the, you know, for most people, giving them a, a real guttural talk about tax policy of a reforming the real estate market to make the best tax policy because, frankly, a 2% increase you could probably put school rates up by 5%, and that would probably have a long – no one's keeping on the 60-second clip for that so people go to the real guttural issues again. So it is going to be really difficult because you need to break that algorithm and stop people going down these rabbit holes. But social media companies realized a long time ago that if you go, you can go one or two ways. If you go, every clip leads to a bigger clip, and that was great, but everything used to end in Gangnam Style then because that was the biggest clip at the time. So now it's every clip leads to a clip that puts you further down that rabbit hole. And that's it doesn't take long before your algorithm knows what you like and just show you content that is, uh, you know, tailored to send you further down, you know, a particular ideology because you tend to really dig down. And I find it really interesting that I sort of I have a few different YouTube uh, profiles I use. Some of them I'll only watch certain content on. Others I watch certain content on. And you just watch my whole algorithm change really, really quickly. Um, even like so on our TikTok, we have you know three staff who work on our TikTok, uh, and I can tell who the most recent person to browse our TikTok is because the algorithm would have matched whoever was most recently <laughs> uploading on TikTok, and it's really insane to see how quickly it can adapt i know exactly which staff member it was at times do you think forcing that content to be open source is a good way to kind of battle that i think and this is what i was getting at a little bit too is we see this we're in a, a new world where mm. whether people want to admit it or not the u.s is no longer the lone superpower you have countries like china 
even though Russia's having a tough time in Ukraine, you got to say that they're, you know, in an, in another way, reformating the power that they once had. You have Brazil, you have India, you have countries all over the world. The world dynamics changing. Do you look at what's happening there as well, where there's going to be so much different information flowing in these sites? Is the only solution to open source or have it become state run? Like, what are the solutions that we can actually do? Yeah. So there's, there's going to be pitfalls and, you know, I'm going to give a balance thing again, but, you know, if you make it open source, you know, you effectively lay out the exact rules of the game. You are just telling all of the exploiters, all of your bad actors exactly how to game the system. You know, they will go, okay, so YouTube is look, YouTube will boost you if you say the word, but at second seven and you only use these three words and you don't say, you know, you don't say the word war, but you say the word uh, conflict. Bam. And now I can make all my disinformation really good because I can use, switch the words out and bam, I now have my perfect disinformation that's perfectly tailored to this algorithm, this open source. So it's a very big risk putting that out to the, out to sort of, because the bad actors will very quickly exploit it. Making it all closed source and having, let's say, a, a private company run it, then you risk effectively them going down what we have at the moment, which is, they're incentivized profit-wise to just keep you scrolling and they're just incentivized to send you down rabbit holes. When you go into its state run, A, it moves pr- uh, probably a bit slower, a bit bureaucratically, but B, that's how China does things. That's how you know you risk it becoming a propaganda network. And if you're, let's say, the president at the time and one of your advisors comes in and says, you know that that you know uh, you know flag talk, whatever the American version of TikTok is that with the state runs. Well, we could you know put our thumb on the scale for the next election and keep you in power. We have all the apparatus, and you just have to make a phone call, and we can probably throw the election to you. And that's a lot of power to hand to a government, um, you know, that could wield it to stay in power and, and effectively influence elections. So it's really dangerous in either way, and I can't, I can't prop, I can't endorse one without realizing the pitfalls. Yeah. And I think we've already started seeing that with the Twitter files. I don't know how Mm. familiar you are with those, but Mm. it's kind of come out where there has been a lot of cross communication between government agencies and a lot of these large social media companies. And in itself, even though it's not necessarily, we're going to put our thumbs on and make sure you win this election, Mm. that type of cross communication really it's pretty hard to argue that it didn't have an effect on 2020. And even if you look at 2016, it's, they're always going to have those type of effects when, you know, you allow for that communication, but moving into something that could throw everything for a tailspin. And as I highlighted a good topic to pick on artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. does artificial intelligence scare you when you look at it on a geopolitical stage where it seems like it's almost the new, Similar to the space race where everyone was racing to the moon, every country is racing to have the best artificial intelligence. And it can also, as much as we're talking about the balance and creating, you know, a net positive and all these nice, you know, good things that could be helpful for humanity, all that gets thrown out the window once artificial intelligence comes in. So how do you approach that? Does it scare you? And how do you think that, you know, we should handle that moving forward? So yeah, it does scare me. Obviously, it's moving in massive leaps and bounds, and we're not, you know, it. We've been given this great, huge weapon, and it's, I think it's almost a, you know, the the stereotype of when you find the uncontacted tribe and you give them an M sixteen, they don't know what to do with it yet. Um, 
you know, but at the same time, I also don't think that, you know, if we were to go, oh, technology scares us. I mean, I can pull up newspapers from, you know, some of the, you know, uh, the late 1800s of, you know, uh, can humans go more than 30 kilometers an hour without disintegrating into atoms because, you know, trains are getting too fast and we should cut cap all travel at this speed. You know, if we'd done that, that would not be great for society. We need to be in, you know, we, need we embrace technology, we move forward. That's how society works. The, for pol- the geopolitics, one of the most worrying thing with AI is effectively astroturfing becomes amazingly effective. You know, right now on your Facebook comment feeds, you know, you've got actual people commenting, but most of your bot comments have been pretty, you know, they, they might be good at some points, but a lot of them are either a, you know, a, let's say a Russian operative who is, you know, somewhat good. But again, that's actually a person. So you're pretty limited with how many you can put in the field uh, or it's bots. And then their responses are pretty canned and you can kind of tell they're not human. Whereas these AI chatbots are getting really good. And if I was, let's say, an oil company and I wanted to get, you know, drilling rights to uh, drill in some penguin penguin enclosure in Antarctica, it's not difficult these days to go pay an AI firm to go effectively, you know, bring 5,000 profiles with actual logical answers and logical responses and have them comment, have them interact, have them be there. And it's really difficult to differentiate them from people and what should be a 5,000 people would say, no, that's ridiculous. Why would you do this? And one person goes, yeah, let's do it. Now you can effectively start evening out these debates with lots of really, really good operating bots. And that's a really big worry because we're not ready for that. Um, you know, particularly Twitter at the moment has got even more bots than it's ever had before. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. So it's a, you know, again, a really difficult problem, uh, but I don't think we should... I don't think we should abandon AI. I think it's a, it's a really it's a massive step forward, and I think there's going to every industry will, will find ways to use it. But I also think we need to start thinking about the best way to prepare people for this. You know, already like what well, you're seeing all these YouTube videos at the moment of like Trump, Obama, you know, and and uh, and Biden playing video games together. I, yeah, they're all pretty funny. That's great. But apart from the hands, AI's pretty much got video down as well. How long is it until we either have, you know, fake videos coming out of, you know, Trump fighting the police when he gets arrested or the other way where some politician does something god awful and then just says, oh, well, it's an AI deep fake. It's not me. I didn't get caught with those prostitutes in the car. It's a deep fake. And that's really difficult because it just throws credibility out the window really quickly. So, you know, don't, you know, it will make people doubt what they see. It will give people an out to get away with whatever they want. You know, the whole thing just became much more difficult. But I'm also, you know, if I wanted to just cap technology where it was, I'd be a Mennonite living in Pennsylvania. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. But I also want to say is that I agree. You don't want to be able to give, like you were saying, give a politician a quick out when they do something that's apprehensible that you're going to lose them office or whatever it is. CEO of a company does something, whatever it might be. Mm. We want to have moral values connected to it. But and this is where I think it comes to a geopolitical stage is that you look at countries like Russia, like China, you're not only highlighting the bot farms that they can create, but there's also a lot of different malware, spyware that they can use against the mm-hmm. US that can utilize AI al- from AI algorithms. They'll be able to, in a lot of ways, affect what we see on social media, as you were highlighting with the bots. There's a lot of dynamics that go behind it, and they're not going to play fair. So no. how do you look at that balancing act where... 
we want to hold ourselves to a moral standard, but there's going to be countries around the world who are currently clawing their way up the geopolitical ladder that don't want to play by that moral standard. And, and both China and Russia have been bragging for a very long time about how easy it is to influence US and uh, Western thought, particularly because our, our internet and other media is very, very open. You know, there's not much stopping, you know, uh, international companies buying up, you know, large media conglomerates and influencing stories. There's not much stopping them buying huge amounts of Facebook ads and pushing them in the algorithm. And fa- what, what incentive does Facebook have to say, well, no, China, I, I'm going to take a stand and not take any money from you. They have every incentive in the world to just take all the money they can get from China and Russia, whether it's one politician or not or the other. You know, It's a really dangerous game, but at the same time, I don't think that we should completely lock out other players getting involved because otherwise you, know, you just have just US content makers to which then great China hires a bunch of people inside the US and we're stuck in the same position six weeks later without even getting any outside perspectives from anywhere else in the world and isolating everyone even further only makes things worse. You know, one of the major differences, particularly in, you know, when we went into Iraq, when the U S went into Iraq, is it was one of the first times where people could IM someone from Iraq and actually chat to the other side. It was a really big moment for a lot of, you know, reporters and bloggers that it was really easy to kind of actually hear what the other, t- other team was saying. You know, that's something we didn't have during the Soviet year. It was really hard to, you know, effectively be chatting with Soviet citizens and getting the other side. And this is why either side had these kind of caricatures of of, uh, of the other team. And that's unfortunately what leads to these divides. Do you want to have build another, again, virtual Berlin Wall and completely separate? I don't think that's a great idea. But at the same time, right now, there is every incentive for these guys to be interfering in elections, be interfering in policy. And just further dividing us. You know, we've seen Russia particularly. They'll, you know, be behind BLM pages and they'll be behind MAGA Patriot pages and they're just stoking resentment. Um, this is a, a real issue and we just can't get around it. And again, it circles back to where we kind of started the interview, which is the only real solution is to educate an entire generation to learn how to make, uh, identify misinformation. But if we start tomorrow, great, we're about 60 years too late. Well, I think that's the best way to wrap it up right there, Michael, is it's a scary world. We're going to have a lot of problems <laughs> that we got to handle, but I think you're right. I think we need to get on it right now if we want to come out the other side in a positive manner. And that's really all I can say with that. But man, thank you for coming on. It was a great conversation. I hope everyone can obviously tell that not only you're well-versed in so many of these different topics, but you're fantastic on the mic and you also deliver it in a great way. So I really want people to go check out your podcast, The Red Line. If you want to let them know what your guys' upload times are and you know where they can find you real quick. So with Red Line Podcasts on all your major platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, whatever the usual ones are, uh, we do a big 90-minute uh, piece every fortnight. And usually every fortnight, we also do a panel, whether it's a bit shorter. We also do shorts, TikToks, and, and you know, little bite-sized uh, episodes as well sort of introduce you to topics as well as just cover really quick things in the news as well. So lots of content, lots of different issues and a very and a long back catalog as well. So if you have an interest in weird topics, anything from Venezuela's recent moves back towards the West or, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, Mexican cartel economics, there's lots to look at. You can click there and, and full 90 minute deep dives into all these issues.
And everyone that always DMs me asking where I get my sources, this is one of them right there. So better go check <laughs> it out. To, glad to hear that. Thank, so, thanks so much. Absolutely, Michael. Thank you for coming on, my man. Absolutely. Oh, oh, oh. See you, everyone.